if we come at things with a curiosity mindset, we open ourselves to learning, we open ourselves to different experiences, we open ourselves to celebrating diversity of, you know, the different perspectives around the world. And it really does, it, it does start with, you know, being being open to asking questions and to literally listening and to getting into that space of really trying to understand somebody else's perspectives. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the podcast. It's lovely to have you here on the Soapy Rao Show with me, Soapy Rao Show, host Sandeep Rao. Um, hey, I know I mentioned this a few episodes back, but I am coming along with my book. It's um, in the process of being done and I'm excited. It's going to be a few more months because it's it's a different process. It's a collaboration, right? Because it is my story, but a friend of mine who's a journalist in Madras has offered to document it. And we kind of went through this process, which I never thought could be done earlier. Of course, I've heard of ghostwriters and people who write uh, for other people. But this has been a nice process because the guy who's helping me with this, his name is Subramani. He's um, also visually impaired. In fact, I think he's completely blind. He's a journalist from Madras. He's 10 years older than me. So a lot of times when we were talking about the um, direction to take the story, uh, a lot of the times there was an overlap with perspective and where we went through different things, yet similar things in different ways, yet similar ways, if that makes any sense. So there was a, it was a very interesting um, conversation, right? Because he would ask me questions, um, which I never thought about, but of course, it's the story of my life. But when you ask questions from someone who's lived a very different, um, yet similar life because of various reasons, you kind of understand uh, to look at it in a different perspective. And also make sense of some of the things you felt about what happened then or um, understand why things happened. So it's anyway, long story short. I know I should have said that at the beginning, short story long. I'm very excited um, to to, to find out how it um, all comes together because I want it to be as honest without exaggeration, without any of the victim bullshit that can come out in these forms of narratives in these these you know documenting your life kind of instances so uh should be out We're sitting right now in november i hope um in the next few months i should have something for you and invite you for a book reading which should be done by not me and um yeah i'll keep you up to date with that development anyhow when i do sit with these projects when i'm either doing the podcast for you like today or I'm thinking of ideas for stand-up, or if I'm thinking of writing a book, it, it just blows my mind how powerful the idea of language and communication is and how they've been instrumental in evolution of the human race and the human species and how we've really come so far with everything that we have because of the ability to communicate our ideas, to communicate our emotions, to communicate the the need for change with human beings. And we do that through various ways, through language, through um, the, the, the things that language can offer and the things that language allows people with large groups internationally 
to smaller groups on a communal level, to a regional level. And then you have the ability for language and inter-language disciplines to kind of then take that forward, interpretation which each language brings to the table and those kind of those kind of developments that happen as a result. And I think just the, the the fact that different people on this planet with different stories from different backgrounds, with different skin colors, with different genders, with different ideas can bring so much depth and diverse um, diversity, if you want to call it, because of the way they look at the world through the language they speak. I think this is not just brilliant. Imagine if we all just spoke 10 words that would just take away from so many things that we are experiencing now. But because we have the ability to speak one or two or maybe five languages each, we have this story going on within our own minds, which we then extend beyond ourselves, beyond the group that we are comfortable with, our families and our friends, to a larger um, platform. And now with the greatest time in history with com- connectivity, with communication, with the tools to do those things, isn't it just baffling why we are stuck in this war of I think restrictive speech where we have so many potentially life-changing society-changing human-changing innovations tools to propagate those innovations those ideas better ways to communicate quicker ways to communicate instant a dispersion of information. But yet, instead of using that to go beyond where we are, we are using it to get stuck with the typical narrow-minded views that some human beings hold, which is this idea of my language, my way of life, my ideas, my skin color, my gender. Because it shouldn't these things communication being the form, language being the tool, help get over these breaks, these divides. Men men and women can talk to each other, um, but now they can't speak to each other because of certain ways it's misinterpreted, because of certain past wrongs that certain people have done. Or if you take the third group or the non-binary group, then you can't use certain words because it doesn't suit their sensibilities or doesn't suit their narrative. And as a result, with the quicker dispersion of information, with the tools to instantly connect with human beings around the world, we are finding more and more ways to misunderstand, to miscommunicate, to find more hiccups in the the things that we want to say and to point the differences as opposed to appreciating the differences that different language brings. And I think that's an injustice to the human experience, to the human potential, and to the innovations that human beings have created for this time and place where we are right now. And I just wanted to put that out there. Let me talk about my guest, because he is a person who is whose work is communication, to help people develop their ways to communicate for their business, for their personal growth, for their small business, for themselves, for their personal brands. My guest today, of course, is Jay Johnson, the founder and CEO of Koyes Creative Group. Um, in today's episode, you'll find out why and how this, this, this organization was formed, why Jay went down this path, where he was before this. And we speak about things which I think are 
quite important to understand where we are today. Things I said earlier, um, like why are we preventing people from communicating and the, the importance of communicating in a language that you understand to appreciate that language, the nuances of interpretation within that language and why we are not effectively communicating our emotional needs are are why aren't we effectively communicating with each other on a larger scale why is there so much prevention of ideas why are there certain restrictions on words why are there restrictions on things that should be said in a certain way shouldn't be said at all and so much more and i'm sure if you are just living you will understand how communication affects your life and today's episode will highlight the need for us to understand um, how to communicate, why it's so important to communicate, and the need of the hour, which is not to restrict our communication between human beings, and in fact, the importance of how to enhance communication. And it was a pleasure chatting with Jay, and I'm sure you'll enjoy the conversation. Uh, as always, I really appreciate you tuning in every week to the podcast. You will uh, really enjoy what's coming up your way. So thank you as always. And without further ado, here's your conversation. Here's your conversation. Again, I keep doing it. Here's the conversation with Jay Johnson, only on the Soapy Rap Show. Cheers. Jay, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. It's a pleasure having you. Thank you so much, Soapy. I'm glad to be here. I, um, I'm always intrigued talking to people who have this ability and and have used that ability to create a an organization or a team or a program to help people and you've done something with that in that space with your company which is coes creative group so could you talk about how you got into this space and eventually ended up forming this company and this team yeah um kind of a funny story it happened by accident so i was working at wayne state university Mm -hmm. um, i was the director of communication in the industrial and systems engineering department and mm -hmm. i actually had the pleasure of working with a lot of international students and uh, at one point in time early in my career there was a challenge that we were facing as a department. We had a lot of international students who were coming into the university mm -hmm. and on paper they had, you know, great academic backgrounds. They looked like they would be the perfect students, but we found that they were struggling when they made it to the American classroom. So one of the faculty members actually asked me, he said, Hey, you know, Jay, you study behavior, you study, you know, you study communication and psychology and neuroscience. Would you, do something to maybe help us understand what's happening here. I said, yeah, absolutely. So I did a little study, some interviews, some participant observations, sat in the classrooms, and it emerged very quickly that there was a cultural divide between the expectations of the students who are coming in and the faculty members that were actually trying to educate them. So right. I put together a small training program that was to help new students that were coming in, onboard them, get them together, uh, and also to educate the faculty. And the program was a big success. And I actually got an acknowledgement from uh, the university because we started to see the student scores improve uh, almost the immediately following semester. And I had a faculty member come up and say, Hey, Jay, you're pretty good at this. You should do this for a living. And I said, maybe I will. <laughs> and started the company there. And, uh, you know, it just kind of from that point forward, it was really about 
um, building a, an effective team. And uh, there's two divisions to our company. We have a talent development division where we work with leaders and organizations to build and transform cultures and individuals. Mm-hmm. And then the other side is our marketing department. So that was actually my first hire was a web designer, a graphic designer, a social media person. And from there, we just started to grow. That's a great story. Um, especially, you know, moving from the academic world where in many, in many situations, people call it a disconnect from the real world and, you know, bringing those learnings and those, um, those, those models and applying it to, you know, so not in some way bridging these two worlds, a theoretical and a practical world, if you'd like to call it. Um, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of students who are attracted to the university system or the college system in the UK and the US and more so now in the US for a master's program or even undergraduate program. So it, what what is the thing that um, is required? You, you know, because many times, you know, the, the when, when I when I applied for my undergrad in, back in the day, many, many years back, there were these exams you have to give, of course, which are like the SATs, which every student gives even in the US. But then you have to write the... Um, the other ones, which are English as a spoken language or um, the, the things which were called, I think were called ESL or it was called TOEFL or these exams to uh, ensure your competency so that you can manage to study in uh, in uh, a foreign uh, degree program. But uh, beyond that, is there a, you said cultural divide, which I think more and more now with the internet, with, with, with real-time influence happening globally, is there less and less of it? Because when a person like me who went in 2002 to the UK and then to the US had a framework of reference, which was not in real time, it was kind of perceived through media or through what you read. But now is there less lag, if you'd like to call it for a student who's coming there? I would say there's probably less, Um, you know, there's so much available on the internet now. And, you know, understanding of, uh, I guess some of the different cultures there's even, even in the U S which has traditionally been kind of, I don't want to say isolated, but even in the U S there's a higher premium on diversity, equity, inclusion. There's a higher premium on uh, travel nowadays or learning new languages. You know, that was when I was growing up, that wasn't something that was really heavily pushed. And I would say that there is more of a sort of global mindset that has been emerging. Mm -hmm. Um, But there are still some things that we see, like, for example, one of the big issues, you know, that we found in that study was a lot of our international students, and not all of them, but a lot of them had sort of this, um, had sort of this mindset in the classroom of just keep your mouth shut, take your notes, listen to the faculty, don't ask questions, don't challenge the faculty, etc. So they were kind of just really internalized learning and the faculty in the United States really had this expectation of, Hey, you should be engaging. You should be answering questions. You should be asking questions. So when that didn't occur, the faculty assumed that the students were either checked out or disengaged and the students, you know, then kind of, uh, as a result, they started behaving towards those students as though they were checked out or disengaged. And then the students kind of reacted in a way of like, I'm doing my best. What do you want me to do here? And and that was really where that divide is. So I think there are, I would say it's less, 
But at the same time, human beings are still human beings and we still have different cultures or different expectations or different social norms. So that was a big part of what I studied was what were the social norms that were getting in the way of, uh, you know, effective communication between the faculty and the students. So there is still that humanity aspect of it and learning different cultures and being able to, uh, you know, integrate and to essentially adapt to different situations. But yeah, I would agree with you. It is a little bit less because of the internet of things. Yeah, because the the, the thing which is, I think, important to recognize is that there are two aspects here, right? One is the way many students, especially from Asia, South Asia, are taught when they're growing up. The system, of course, is slowly changing. And there are schools that are more interactive, like uh, based on um, a model of encouraging students to ask questions and challenge certain um, certain ways of things being taught. But predominantly, it's listen to the teacher. If you question the teacher, you're seen as challenging authority or undermining authority. And the other side of it is also when a student comes, say, from Asia or, you know, India, there is this barrier of, you know, how do I sound when I speak, right? There's this, there's this insecurity sometimes with the accent or maybe the pronunciation of words. And, and, and I think I've, I've heard quite a few people say this, that they don't want to seem more than the question being invalid or not as credible. It's how will that question sound to the classmates? Because it's not just, oh, how smart a student you are, because there is a stereotype coming with especially Asians about being smart or whatever, whatnot. But it's how do they sound? And I think there's a lot of pressure there. And it's maybe self, self-inflicted or self-created pressure. But uh, to uh, address the broader angle of communication, how, how much of how you sound uh, plays a factor versus how much you know or um, how valid your, your, your question or your challenge is? That's such a great point, Sophie. Honestly, like, so I've I've had the opportunity and the privilege to train in about 37 countries right now, including in Korea, in Japan, in India. And one of the things that I have found in different uh, in different situations is somebody will come to me and said, I wanted to ask a question. Um, and literally, they will ask, to say, I wanted to ask a question during your course. However, my English is not that good. So I didn't want to ask it out loud. And they literally would have said it exactly like that. I'm like, your English is better than mine. <laughs> like you are more grammatical. You are more structured. That was incredible. But yes, there is sort of that high premium or um, sort of that internal doubt. I do mm. see a lot of that. Um, holding people back. And usually when I noticed that, and after the first couple of times that I had trained overseas, it is something that I acknowledge and say, I want you to engage. I want you to throw it out there. We, you know, don't be afraid to, you know, don't let these kind of barriers hold you back because otherwise the whole class or the whole course is losing ideas and we're losing perspectives. And this is really meant to be a conversation we're going to understand each other just fine. And, you know, usually that'll open up a little bit of space. And then the first person that speaks up usually kind of normalizes it. And after that and say, Hey, thank you. You know, thank you for the courage. If I had to try to speak your language, it would be an absolute mess. So, you know, it's one of those where through the dialogue, we end up becoming more comfortable with the dialogue, but you have to have somebody that does know and acknowledge exactly what you said of, yes, sometimes that is a big barrier to engaging in conversations that could be really meaningful. 
Yeah, it, it's 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 a little intimidating, you know, because um, I remember when I was in university in the UK, I was terrified to open my mouth during a lecture because. I was scared I would get my V's and W's wrong. And more than, you know, doing, um, thinking about the, the international relations course or a political thought or whatever, I was like, okay, don't use any words which have, which start with a V or a W in case you mess it up. And, and I would break out into a cold sweat and not worry about it. So eventually I'm like, you know what? Screw it. I'll just figure it out later. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so think, sorry for that experience. But yeah, no, maybe, I, I've, I've heard um, very similar accounts. Yeah, but you know what? The good thing is that it, yeah, I became a little, um, you know, paranoid about how I would sound and it pushed me to this thing where I would be kind of obsessive about speaking, um, you know, speaking well. And it kind of then when I came back, I kind of listened to a lot of audio books and eventually it made my uh, speech better, became, I became a much more well-informed speaker uh, because it's something I held on to because it was maybe a sore point or an insecurity, if you want to call it. Uh, and I remember when I came back from the U- U- UK, US, I had a bit of an accent because it does, uh, you know, in my case, I'm sure many people, it doesn't even bother. But for me, it it kind of it, I held on to it. I was like, okay, you know what, if you can speak well, it gives you the sense of power and the sense of power to be heard. Uh, but one thing which I strangely observed is that when everyone, a native English speaker, uh, an English speaker from India, who's also native, like I grew up my entire life speaking and thinking in English. So technically I'm a native English speaker as well, but an Indian accent English speaker versus a British accent English speaker or an American accent English speaker. When all these groups are thrown into, say, a Spanish class, that's amazing because then everyone is starting from scratch. And I think that's quite a fascinating thing to look at. I, uh, I'll share an experience I thought was kind of interesting. So at one point in time, I served as a vice president for an international non-governmental organization. And uh, my position was assigned to Europe. And particularly, I was assigned to the Nordic countries. So I was traveling. I spent about 140 days traveling around, um, you know, Denmark, Norway, Sweden, Iceland, uh, Finland, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, mm-hmm. all of which, all eight of those countries have their own language. And it was fascinating to me because when, you know, they have a lot of different business development programs that are all working together. So English is very, very common, but they had a very difficult time in some cases understanding each other because each of them had their own accent. And I ended up becoming a English mediator for the English language. It would be like, oh, what they're saying is this, what they're saying is this, (laughs) even though everything was in English, it was just this accent. But um, thankfully I have, uh, and I don't know, maybe it's because I've done a lot of cultural work, but I've got a very, uh, uh, sensitive ear to accents and I'm able to kind of quickly pick up and be able to have no issues and in, in communicating it, you know, as long as, as long as we're somewhat close to the language, we're good. <laughs> yeah. 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 And it seems that language itself is changing, right? Like there was a lot of influence, uh, in our education system from the British way of, um, English, the British form, but then it's become more Americanized with the, say, the information technology companies outsourcing jobs to, you know, the everywhere in the world from Africa to air to China to India. And slowly, I feel now in uh, with India as an example, there's less, I don't know if shame is the right word, but less hesitancy to speak, uh, 
you know, English as a global language in your own way, like Indianize it, be comfortable speaking it. I, I don't know what has made that shift possible. I think it's a great shift because once you get past the barrier of how you sound, but if you're more worried or more focused on the on the communication aspect, as opposed to just the, the the peripherals of what it sounds like or who you might impress or who you might, who might laugh at you, then the ideas start flowing better because people are less hesitant to say, you know what, do I have to sound like, you know, a person from the West End theater who's pronouncing all the words perfectly in the British accent. But instead of that, I can actually think and communicate the idea in a language or a form of the language, which I am most comfortable communicating in. Yeah, I think a big part of it is is the globalization of business. I mean, just sort of the expectation, um, I can tell you, you know, as a business owner in the United States and somebody who does do a lot of international travel, mm-hmm. my expectation is not when I travel to a different country, it's not necessarily that my host or that everybody's going to speak English. Of course, if they're hiring me for a speaker, generally they know that English is my, you know, English is my first language. But at the same time, um, one of the experiences that I had was I, I stayed with a host family in Japan and they spoke no English. And mm. that was perfectly OK. We were able to communicate back and forth via Google Translate. We were able to connect and, and had actually a really beautiful time together. Uh, I think that when you start to see a, a, a new interest and promotion of things like diversity, equity and inclusion, I also think that it's something that um businesses are really being trained that people will bring their authentic self and when they bring their authentic self to a space that that is a value proposition for the business for the connection for the relationship so i would say that there's a lot less um you know a long time ago i think that there was more stereotypes that would come out with uh you know stereotypes that would come out with um let's say accents or the way that people would speak. And I think that there's probably a push and a move away from that to really engage people where they're at and to celebrate them where they're at, which is actually a really beautiful thing. Yeah. I think that is a, it's, it, it takes away one layer of separation uh, where there's a possibility of someone pointing a finger or, using it as a differentiating factor saying, oh, you know, look what they sound like. And as you you rightly mentioned, the stereotypes, right, which would enter the room way before the individual. And that would be in some cases funny, in some cases uh, an uphill battle for the individual to say, you know what, as you mentioned, for the students who are like, you know what, I really wanted to ask you the question, but I couldn't. But how much um, of a role does technology with, uh, as you mentioned, uh, Google Translate or these AI enabled tools where, especially in the communication space with real time translation or with um, various things in the language space, how much of a role um, have have they played in enhancing communication uh, between individuals and also on a business scale? How much um, can a business leverage these communication tools to be more effective? That's a great question. Um, obviously, with the advancement in technology, and, and it's interesting because I, I remember like the very first, uh, the very first time that I started to use Google Translate while I was traveling, it wasn't particularly accurate. It wasn't great. You could barely get by. And I mean, nowadays, it's one of those things where it's like it is. I'm going to call it. You know, the last time that I've used it, I would say that it's pretty close to 
almost real-time communication. You can even have little headphones where it's actually translating back and forth in your ears. So I think that really makes the world smaller, which is really nice. Um, But I would even say that other technologies too have sort of brought about different cultural perspectives. You know, when we think of something like social media and the accessibility of um, music from other countries or from, you know, global, you know, from global cultures and things like that, that is now coming through on things like TikTok or an Instagram reels. I think that's really opened some space to be like, oh, wow, that's really awesome. I, I really like that. Who is that? Oh, that's a, that's a Korean pop band. Oh, very cool. Let's listen to some more like that. And it, and it really is kind of shortening the distance in between different cultural aspects and creating appreciations for different cultural aspects. You know, we've always had sort of a, a culinary approach to it, like, oh, I really like these types of foods and things like that. But now I think that it's not just the United States that's exporting its media or exporting its music and television shows and so on and so forth. Netflix, for example, is giving us access uh, in the United States to a lot of shows that are being done and created and cultivated by different, uh, you know, by different artists from around the world. And that's also, I think, something helping to really shorten that, you know, distance between the different cultures or different uh, geographies. Yeah. I mean, it's fascinating how, you know, I was just thinking about this the other day and the evolution of language and how, say, a country like India has so many languages, right? Within a state, there are different languages, dialects, and within the country as a whole, it's even broader. And then you kind of have, um, on a global stage, so many languages. But um, with now all these things changing, as you just pointed out, the the the, the shortening of distance from um earlier because of technology and social media and these tools i I wonder where we are heading with also the restriction on on freedom of speech by certain groups of people because of various sensibilities or various philosophies or ideologies being offended or violated according to them like on one front you have this constant need for human expression and to communicate and the other side you have this restrictive nature of it so I almost feel like are we heading towards a um, a model of hybrid language where you know it's it's kind of encompassing everything that we've uh, experienced so far as as a species yet it it takes into account this electronic aspect I don't know I'm just I'm kind of fascinated with where this might go I you know the the speed at which technology is being deployed these days if we like look at modern innovations and we even go back to say let's let's go back to when the car was you know created and and launched and we're you know you're talking a hundred years ago and the combustion and so on and so forth and the the model a or the model t etc and then you look to other innovations that were really game changing and you think like television and you think radio etc and then all of a sudden you look in the last 20 years and you start to see things like the iphone the internet of things artificial intelligence etc the speed at which technology is really being deployed i mean i remember being a kid and watching the jetsons and thinking that an opportunity to like talk to somebody while their face was on a tv and my face was on a tv i was like wow that technology is so cool that'll never 
ever exist. And yeah. here we are doing exactly that, <laughs> you know, across the world from each other. So the speed at which technology is being deployed really is having a huge impact on behaviors, on culture. You know, that's that's a big part of what I like to study is trying to understand, okay, you know, we, we've got these hardwired neurological functions from our species being developed over 185,000 years. Uh, only 6,000 years of that is actually like civilized. Only uh, only 20 years of that is the internet, 20 or 30 years of that has the internet. Like how, how, how quickly we are advancing in a very different space at this time. So um, it'll be really interesting to kind of watch the progress on how these things impact the way that we communicate, the way that we lead, the way that we run companies, the way that we manage our day-to-day affairs, et cetera. Um, because we have no idea what technology is going to exist in 2033, let alone, um, you know, how we're navigating some of those things now. So it's really fascinating to look at. Yeah, it's, yeah, as you pointed out, you know, 6,000 years of civilization and maybe 20, 30, 40 years of the internet, how many, um, and you know, how how many massive changes have happened? Because I, I see this happening where there's this, 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 uh, where people are gravitating to their um, natural, if you want to call it their mother tongues, right? You see this uh, pride battle happening where in India there are so many languages, I pointed out. Um, but, you know, there's Hindi, which is one of the national languages, there's official languages, sorry. Um, and then you have people in the South who speak Tamil and there's Kannada. And I'm sure you've come across various different languages spoken in India. And one thing which I find a little restrictive for human expression and growth is this my language is better than yours and you know people kind of hold on to that and you know there's sanskrit which is also like latin and greek the older languages right and and many people are like learning that because in some way yes it, there are texts that can be interpreted truly uh, through that language but it's also pride thing and again i i feel pride in this context might be a barrier to communication because you're not willing to look past the language element and not focus on how to communicate effectively, but hold on to some kind of a notion that you are coming to this conversation or to this, this encounter with a chip on your shoulder. You know, it's, it's an interesting point because when we think about it and throughout the course of our, we'll call it civilized history, right? So um, language, our species has been on the planet for 180, 185,000 years. And language really, I mean, the first known fossil evidence of language is what, 40,000 years ago. So we existed without sort of written communication or a formal set of communication in some way, shape or form for many, many years. And over the course of the last 40,000 years, you've had different dominant regimes. You've had, you know, the Egyptians, the Romans, the Greeks, etc. And when you had some of those different dominant spaces, there was sort of an expectation of, okay, well, that is, you know, they run the economies, they run the, you know, the, the global trade, they run these different things and, and having to adapt to it. But I think that there was always some level of resistance of people maintaining their own cultural identities, maintaining their own language identities. Mm -hmm. I think as the world has gotten smaller with technology and being able to travel, et cetera, 
it seems to me that there's probably space for both you know being able to have some form of a a universal currency of language right and whether that's english or whether you know in 10 years that's a a different language or you know 100 or 200 years that's a different language i think is it, it's essential that we have some level of capacity to communicate with each other but i also think it's beautiful to be able to hold on to some of those cultural traditions and you know assimilation is not necessarily a a positive thing. I think you lose something with it. And, you know, when we think about like some of the dead languages or languages that no longer exist, or that there's very, very few people in the, on the planet that actually speaks that language. Um, One of my dear friends from Estonia is a, a linguist and she talks about how the constructions of language actually can tell you like historical context, the way that, uh, you know, the way that masculine or feminine shows up in the language, the way that uh, objects are spoken about gives actual like almost like this uh, archaeological insights into some of the cultural values that a tribe or that a culture or that a geography would have had. So I, Mm. I hope that we don't lose those things, but I hope they also don't necessarily get in the way of being able to say, Hey, it's okay for us. And, and this is where I'm, I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit prouder of the United States because there is more of an interest in other cultures and language and learning other language that wasn't exactly, we weren't necessarily pushed for that when I was younger. And I see more of that push happening now of like, no, it is really important that we learn multiple languages so that we have this opportunity to really connect with other cultures around the globe. Yeah. I find that, I find that quite amazing, right? That a language um, is, you know, brushed over with the broad brush stroke when it's like, oh, you know, you just say, as you said, Spanish or English, and then you just move on to how it's spoken. But these, these things of what it depicts of the time where that language was born and the journey of the, the group of people who spoke that language, I, I find that amazing. And it's such an, you know, injustice not to know that, right? Because sometimes even, um, you know, in addition to English, I speak the local language of the state I live in, which is Canada. And while I do speak it, I don't uh, sometimes understand because I try to make the English conversion to Canada and I kind of use that context. But if you actually say it the way it's meant to be said, the interpretation is so much broader that it is it, it has a completely different meaning. And I find that quite, quite amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Language is one of those things where uh, we take it for granted. I think sometimes we take for granted um, some of the nuances of individual languages. And even like, for example, I speak uh, very, very poorly, but I I do speak Spanish. Mm -hmm. Uh, I found out that I speak it better than I thought, though, when (laughs) I've been, uh, you know, transported to Guadalajara, Mexico and I'm in a country for seven days, you know, by about day three or four, my Spanish language skills have come back and I've started to utilize them. And now all of a sudden I can have a 45 minute conversation with somebody. Still, I'm sure that in my brain, I've experienced that of going, I wonder what I sound like right now, or I'm, this is not particularly good, but generally it's still respected that you're attempting to speak a language in another culture. So, uh, but it was a very different experience when, say, I traveled to Cuba 
uh, when the United States had opened up those borders. And while it is Spanish, it is a very, very different Spanish. And it is done at different speeds, with different intonations, with different contexts, with different um, values behind some of the different words of the language. And, you know, so, yeah, we can all speak a similar language and still come to it from very different cultural dimensions, which is, uh, like I said, still really fascinating and something to be proud of, I think. Yeah. Uh, not something that, it is something I think that it is, it, it is possible to be proud of and still say, hey, you know what? We can modify ourselves or help our, you know, we can, we can be a little bit more. I know that if I'm speaking to somebody whose English is a second language, simply slowing down and simply taking a little bit of additional time, not necessarily speaking louder, but, you know, <laughs> slowing <laughs> it down just a little bit can really make a huge impact because, you know, in the general sender receiver model, it's like a messenger sends a message, the receiver receives it, codes it, decodes it, and sends it back. When there is different languages at play, there's extra steps in there. It's, you know, the, the, the receiver gets it, translates it, makes meaning of it, translates it back into whatever the original language is, and then responds to the message. So simple things like cultural and from a cultural adaptability is slowing down, making sure that we are clearly enunciating to the best of our ability in whatever dialect or accent that we have mm. makes a meaningful difference in our ability to connect with each other. Mm. It's interesting you mentioned that, you know, because I uh, coming from this comedy, a uh, stand up comedy performance point of view, uh, when I get called for shows in um in, in in India, many times people ask uh, specifically like an English speaking comedian. And when I ask them about the client and the audience in the show, I ask them, are they comfortable in English? They're like, yeah, yeah, they're all educated. I'm like, see, that's not what I asked, right? Because there's this notion that if you speak English, you're educated, which I think is wrong. Um, but there's this difference where someone like me who thinks in English, but also speaks Canada, but there are people who think in Canada but speak English. So it's very difficult, like as you just pointed out, when I'm doing uh, jokes, when I'm telling jokes to people who think in a different language but speak English, there is that lag, there is that that time difference almost and subtle um, you know, nuances or references are lost because it's, it's such a big difference because even though you might say the same words that they know, the way it's being interpreted is very, very different. And I see this yeah. now with international shows i because for me it's always been a dream to perform around the world and i saw english as a language that's spoken everywhere in the world but it's spoken number one differently of course but it's also understood differently because even in norway there may be people who speak um norwegian but they might think in english or, or vice versa so when you go and do these shows you have to keep that in mind but what i'm noticing now is because of these different forms of say english the indian english or the um, you know, South Asian way of speaking English, there are people traveling, say, from India or from wherever the language and doing it for their kind of English speaking audiences anywhere in the world. So they might go to Australia and perform only for Indians over there because of the language connect. And I mean English, of course, but in an in Indianized familiar home um, sense of, oh, I feel at home because I'm being spoken to, told jokes to in this form of English I'm comfortable with. 
It's so funny that you mentioned that and you brought up a memory of mine that I went to a comedy show actually in Iceland when I was in Reykjavik mm-hmm. and uh, they had some uh, native English as a first language speakers, American comedians that were there, but they also had some Icelandic speakers. And it was so fascinating to me to watch, you know, as, as the native, you know, the, the, the American comedian that got on there, there was a couple of times that a certain joke would drop and I would laugh Mm -hmm. and then it would take a second. And then all of a sudden the rest of the group would start laughing and vice versa happened when it was a Icelandic native that was speaking English that they would say something. And like, for me, I was lost and Mm -hmm. they were doing it in English. And like, I didn't get the joke and like a bunch of people around me are laughing and I'm like, okay, I missed something there. And, you know, usually it was like either a play on words that, you know, the English language sounded like a, uh, an Icelandic saying or something like that. And it really had different meaning and just very clever. And it was just like somebody to have to explain that to me. So comedy is one of those things too. And I I am not a comedian, but I like to deploy humor in my talks Uh, is one of those things where you got to be mindful because different, you know, the different audiences are going to definitely react to different, uh, you know, jokes or to different styles or to different uh, meanings in a very different way. So I applaud you, Sophie. That's awesome that you're taking that international approach to it. That's got to be incredible and fun um, and a challenge, I'm sure. It's a big challenge, you know, because it's, uh, I wouldn't say easy to find um, your crowd anywhere in the world for any comedian, whatever they're they're following. I think it's incredible. Hats off to each and every one of them. But um, it's also this notion that I think stuck with me from this this place of insecurity that I need. Like I went to the Edinburgh Fridge in 2017. And for me, it was more of, oh, now I can, you know, almost like come back to, to the UK. I and mean, it, it was Edinburgh and Scotland. But of course, it's an international festival. But in my mind, in some skewed way, I'm like, now I can come back here after leaving Swansea in Wales in 2003 with this 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 fear of speaking publicly in my lectures. Now I'm coming and doing a one-hour show, doing multiple shows in front of native British uh, speakers, or you know, and that I think it is more psychological and more of a behavior than a, a a comedy challenge. And that I found that quite interesting because I mean. A, that was six years back and I'm no longer in that space where I have to go perform at the Melbourne Fringe or at the International Festival in Adelaide or in, 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 in you know, say Just for Laughs in Canada. I mean, I, I would do it because of the comedy, but not of the fact that I have to prove myself as a an English speaker who can make um, Western English speaking people laugh. And it's a very big mental uh, load that's taken off. Even as a speaker, though, uh, like even outside of the world of comedy, I think that we all kind of maybe face a little bit of that imposter syndrome or that sort of, am I good enough? Do I belong on this stage or mm. am I really resonating with an audience? You know, there's that sort of self-doubt that is just a natural function of our brain of, okay, are they really going to resonate with the the leadership message that I'm purveying today? Are they going to, are they going to understand the behavioral elements program? Because my background, like in my brain, I understand all of the different pieces. How am I going to be able to communicate that effectively to a team of executives and so on and so forth? So I do think that there is even in anything where you are on stage or you are the 
the the center of attention that there's always going to be some of that initial at least probably early in career at least some of that self-doubt of going all right do, is this hitting am i resonating <laughs> am i you know finding these spaces uh you know do i have to prove myself here and then all of a sudden at some point in time i don't know maybe it's from growth maybe from experience like okay i've got this you know this is hit this is hit a hundred times and not, not missed. I know that this part's going li- to like play, whether it's in this audience or this audience, because, and, and, and I think the thing that maybe helped me the most is remembering that it doesn't matter what country you're from. doesn't matter what language you speak. We're all human. We have, uh, you know, we have similar needs. We, we all want uh, great things for our family. We all need to have enough resources to eat and to educate ourselves and to learn new experiences and so on and so forth. And when we think about us being the human race and that starts the conversation, it does make it, I think, a little bit easier for us to go, hey, the person sitting across from me, they want good food. They want great education for themselves and for their kids and for their, you know, families. They want a roof over their heads. If we start from there, it makes it a little bit easier to say we have a lot more in common than we actually have that divides us. Yeah, that's beautiful because you sometimes get caught up in the semantics of it, right? When you are preparing for a, like I, I I catch myself used to catch myself doing this like what's the profile of the audience is it a big company is it a small company what's the and and that's such an important thing you mentioned earlier which is the authenticity when you bring that to the table is that how you sound whether it's your with your um, Native American accent or with my Indian accent or whether I was foreign educated and I you know I naturally you know kind of ad- adapted to speak with a British accent or I put on a fake accent sometimes it none of those things matter because of course the words do the way they present do but those are just tools to get your message and once you feel the message and I think it's more of a behavior thing when you're in that space as you said looking at I'm a human being speaking about what makes me fulfilled as a human being to other human beings who want to fulfill that need I think it's a much more fun, profound connection and a profound um, way of communicating. You know, we all communicate through emotion. We all communicate through body language. And that's actually one of the things that's really helped me in my international travels is uh, one of my background and kind of specialty areas is body language and reading body language. And, you know, it, it when you really sort of hone in on that skill, you start to see, oh my gosh, whether I'm in, whether I'm in Norway or whether I'm in Korea, people still tend, of course, there's some nuances and differences, but it's almost this universal language that connects us when somebody smiles or when somebody looks at you and you feel the emotion for coming from the other person, that's a positive thing, or somebody invites you in and brings you into the table or uh, any of those sort of gestures, those those have an impact, I think, sometimes more profoundly than any of the words that I choose. And, mm. you know, one of the things that I teach is you can say the same set of words. If I said, uh, I never said she stole my money. And then I said, I never said she stole my, my money. Mm. I never said she stole my money. I never said she stole my money. And all of a sudden, the same words can make very different meanings. So when we focus on the other person and the 
feelings and, and sort of like those emotions that are universal, body language aspects that are sort of universal. You've got two connection points even before we get to the spoken language or the words that we're using. And I think that that could be a really powerful connector. You know, I've always been intrigued by body language because um, I feel, a, a, you know, at least I felt I lost out because I couldn't make eye contact because I couldn't see the person clearly. I couldn't see what they were doing. Uh, and it's strange how, um, you know, it's funny sometimes actually I'm, you know, um, someone says hello and I'm like, hey, how's it going? And my wife's like, Sandeep, they're not even looking at you. <laughs> you can't just acknowledge anyone in the restaurant, right? You're not that important. Uh, but at the same time, you have these other cues which um thing but strangely for me i i, I really um you know it kind of what you just said resonates for me but not in the not in the, the the same cues like body language facial expression but i sense it with tone um and for me it's been a very strange thing because i'm very sensitive to raised voices or even as you've mentioned that statement in four different ways um to how things are told and there's not as a comedian there's not as a speaker there's not as a podcaster but it's been there since i was a kid um my my, my auditory way of perceiving language um even in a romantic way when someone it doesn't have to be an accent but when they speak in a certain way whether that's the, the the texture of the voice or the tone of the way they speak i'm immediately drawn to certain people i'm immediately averse to certain people and i find that um, has served me well. <laughs> I don't know if it's um, if, if if it's biased to certain kind of uh, conditioning that I was put through, but more you know on 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 a level where sometimes I'm so sensitive to raised uh, voices to confrontation that unknowingly in many situations my knee jerk reaction to a to a comment or a statement replicates that thing that actually upsets me, and I find that really weird because you know. There's a certain way of speaking you're exposed to from a young age, whether it's your parents, whether it's your siblings, whether it's people in the family, extended family, and you unknowingly pick up that. And, you know, I remember situations my wife brings that up with me and she's like, you know how rude you sound? And I'm like, I don't mean to be rude. This is just what I said. And then I'm like, oh, I, I know exactly what you just said. It sounds, yeah. and it's so crazy that sometimes things that affect you the most is something that you replicate unknowingly. You you hit the nail absolutely on the head, though. When you think about something like tone, you can hear in a tone whether somebody's smiling, whether somebody's enjoying a conversation, and the natural inclination is to react in that way. And maybe we open up a little bit, or you know, maybe our eyes smile back at somebody else, and you can almost feel it in that tone or in that conversation, even if, you know, one of the things that one of the things that we really look at is, okay, in a world where we were communicating with each other just via the phone, mm -hmm. would you be able to tell what my facial expression might be? Would you be able to tell how uh, I'm reacting to something? And we do this when we're like working with customer service, people who are having to make phone calls and they don't have, uh, you know, they don't have any kind of face-to-face -face interaction. They don't have distance. They don't have anything else. But literally helping them to understand you can get so much information simply out of tone of voice and how the other person is showing up. So I, I can understand certainly 
wear like tone or anything else like that would be a sort of sensitive marker because it is an input that's so important and we tend to match each other's tone. So those mirror neurons that we have inside of our brain, if I raise my voice, somebody else might raise their voice and then back and forth. And all of a sudden we find ourselves screaming at each other and we have no idea why. Um, But, you know, we can also really, we can actually really impact somebody else's mood simply by lowering our voice and going slower. Can you imagine if we did the entire podcast and I was using that sort of voice, people would end up falling asleep. So Mm. when we think about the power of tone inside of that language, it can be something that is almost like a great equalizer. It's so amazing that, um, that you pointed that out just now is that, pace of speaking, the the intervals. And, you know, when it comes to behavior, right, I um, sense this big change, you know, and I, I, I was never a good eager listener because I was so full of what I want to say and, you know, eager for that to be applauded uh, from my early days of stand-up or you know, even before that. But now when I um, try to make a big effort to... Um, listen to, as you said, these elements, right, that come through a person's voice besides just the words and how they sound. And um, I'm noticing this, this, even when I meet a person um, face-to-face, say we're out for a drink somewhere, and I can immediately tell when they aren't keyed in or they don't want to listen because they'll say the right things. They're like, yeah, 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 of course, you know, or they'll say, yeah, you know, and then what happened? And they'll give you the right cues, but I can immediately tell that they're either looking at their phone or they're checking out someone else or they're listening to someone else. And I'm like, isn't this, because this, this is something for years I was, uh, I, I regretted that I'm, I'm visually impaired and I'm like, oh my God, I can't see, I'm losing out. I can't, I can't look at beautiful women. I can't, I can't drive, like, especially in a social setting. But now I'm like, you fool, you missed out on years of picking up on this because now sometimes I'll be honest with you and <laughs> no shame attached, but I'm sitting there. My wife's like, okay, which table are you listening to? I'm like the third one from the left. And she's like, oh, you're shameless. <laughs> <laughs> so she- so we're at dinner or we're on the beach or on holiday or whatever. And she's like, I love people watching. I'm like, I love people listening, <laughs> you know, because I can, um, I can stare into my glass of beer and they're like, oh, look at that guy who's visually impaired. Isn't that, um, and they'll probably have their own story of, based on what they see from me. But I'm just like, you know what? I know exactly what happened on your holiday and how much you fought. <laughs> and I'm not giving away <laughs> any indication of that. So it's actually... Uh, you, you know, it, a thing for me is that it's kind of liberating saying instead of just constantly going, oh, I can't see and feel bad for myself. I'm like, hey, use what you do have because hearing, listening and that form of input is so powerful with, without um, you, you know, and if you don't give it the, the attention it's due, I feel there's so many people who just don't listen because they might have perfect hearing, but they just don't listen because they're just using one sense to engage with the world. Yeah, you're so right, Sandeep. And and let me, I'll even take it to a different way and, and sort of how I understand that. And I imagine, and I imagine you probably have had a little bit of fun just being like listening across those rooms and really being able to analyze a story. That's That's such a powerful tool and a gift to be able to do that because there are people, as you said, that, hear perfectly fine and yet don't listen at all. Um, 
when COVID hit, mm-hmm. uh, my company lost $200,000 in like two weeks. So I, all of my, all the speaking engagements, all of the training programs and everything else like that. And I remember for a moment, you know, my brain went to what did I lose? And I started thinking about like the financial loss and how am I going to do this? Or how am I going to pay the staff? Or how am I going to keep everybody together? And it was actually one of my staff members that's helped me to realign my perception. And they asked a simple question. Okay, we've lost that, but what have we gained? And all of a sudden it, it shifted my mindset. And I was just like, we've gained time. We now have time to do some innovative things. We have some time to create new programs, new products. We have time to slow down just a little bit and rekindle some kind of work-life balance. And I think that that is such a natural thing is like when we lose something or when we don't have something that almost becomes this centrifugal focus for us. When in reality, if we take that step back and say, but what, what did I gain because of that? It really does help us shift our mindset and say, what I did gain was X, Y, and Z. And that's beautiful. And that's, that's impactful and it's meaningful. So uh, I really, I, I can understand where, uh, I can understand where that mentality comes from. And I, I really do applaud you in that aspect of being able to say, hey, you know what? There's these awesome things that, you know, can really come from something like this and that there's not any shame that should be had because of how we are. We're all unique. We're all different. We all have different things that we carry with us. And each of those is what brings our unique, authentic self out. So I think that's such a powerful lesson for people to say is really cherish the things that we do have and the things that we do bring to the table because they make us uniquely us and that has meaning. And I think that that's really, really cool. Thank you. I appreciate those words. Um, and, and sometimes that's what worries me. You know, I'm not, uh, you know, sitting on a pedestal looking down at people going, listen to me, follow me and look at what I did because it, it, for years it hurts, you know, and the, the, the message and the narrative is so powerful that you're forced to look from a place of inadequacy or from a place of scarcity. When, even when you look at yourself, there are certain um, attributes that you are, are told that if you have this, you will be accepted, you will succeed, you will be celebrated, but it's so hard to take a step back. And that's along with that sense of, um, viewing your 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 yourself and people say oh celebrate who you are but it's it's just the, it's just those words being thrown at yourself without actually recognizing what um you do have and taking the time to understand what uh what you do and why you do those things and more now that that behavior of replicating successful people or under the guise of authenticity doing things that will be rewarded or celebrated or being conditioned to believe that, you know what, it's a certain path that is good. Of course, a lot has changed now. There are a lot of different avenues for people to explore. But what worries me is this behavior along with these tools, which can easily, from a tool, become a weapon. What might happen to people who aren't able to appreciate themselves for all the things that they have, the good and the bad, or so-called good and bad? Yeah, sure. Um, And, uh, you know, I I go back to one experience that I had as a business owner uh, when we were hiring for one of our social media positions. Mm -hmm. And it was, we had a list of 
candidates that we were interested in doing an interview with. And at one point in time, when we were doing a virtual interviews and we were on Zoom, um, utilizing the Zoom platform, and about 30 minutes before one of the interviews, we got an email from the candidate that said, would you be open to doing this interview on Google, on, uh, you know, Google and on the Google platform rather than Zoom? Yeah. And we were like, yeah, sure. No problem. And when we got onto the Google platform and Google meetings, we found that the candidate was deaf. Uh, was completely deaf, unable to hear anything. And the reason that they wanted to use the Google platform was the translation or the, you know, the, the closed captioning in the Google platform was just excessively better than that of Zoom or WebEx or Teams or any of the other pieces at that time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I asked the question and the, and the question that I had for her was, you know, what what was it that precluded you from communicating more than 30 minutes before the actual intended interview time? And uh, we ended up getting into a dialogue about how often that if she disclosed, hey, I'm deaf or hard of hearing in advance, that she wouldn't even get the interview, that they would cancel the interview. Oh, I'm sorry, the position's been filled. And it was just like, she was struggling to find a position. Uh, we ended up hiring her. She was absolutely fantastic, bar none, the best candidate that we had interviewed through that process. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I had started the onboarding process, she broke down into tears and she was just like, thank you. Thank you for this opportunity. And I was like, well, what do you mean? And and like, to, honestly, I really mean this. I'm like, I didn't understand. What do you mean? Like, you're fantastic. And she's like, I've been sitting there and thinking I'm not good enough. I'm not, no one's going to hire me because of this disability that I carry and so on and so forth. And I was just like, you're not defined by your disability. Your talent is what is defining you in this role. And if that means that we are going to use some different technologies. So we adopted the Google suite for our business meetings ran perfectly. And I think it's once we can get past that, she, she also sort of had that, uh, that fear, that sort of like, uh, that fear of I'm not going to be good enough, or I'm not going to do this, but, um, you know, and this over sense of I have to prove myself. And it's just like, we just want you to be you. We just want you to experience this the same way that we are in in whatever capacity that looks like for you. And we're going to show up for you and make sure that you have the tools and things like that needed. Um, but it really was, honestly, it was it was a it was a great education for me. Uh, in working in working with her to really kind of understand what are some of the challenges and what are some of the preconceived notions that I had, you know, like I I'll admit, I was like, how are you, how would you, you know, wh- how can I help you or how can I support you in going to meet with clients? And she's like, Oh, I've got my phone. I've got this. Don't worry about it. I can go. And they, actually she goes 90% of the time, people don't even realize that I'm deaf or hard of hearing. And it was just such a powerful education. And I think that when we do take the time to connect and really sort of value people for who they are and what they bring to the table, I think a lot of these things kind of wash away and, you know, we can have empathy and compassion, but it doesn't have to be that sympathy. Like, Oh, I feel so bad for you. She has a great life and her quality of life is exceptional. And, you know, while there is, 
you know, while she does have the disability of being deaf, it doesn't change who she is in that person. You know, it is shaped some of the ways in which she shows up, but it's definitely, she's still an absolutely fantastic person who is, is valuable and has a lot to contribute. So it was a really interesting experience and, and learning opportunity for myself going through that. And I think for people like her and people like me, if I can, you know, draw a, a, a parallel, it's helpful. And I'm not using words like inspirational or celebrating because those are unnecessarily overused. I think, but having people like you uh, recognize these, these, these things and, you know, and, and acknowledging that, you know, okay, I'm not just hiring you. And, um, and more than the fact that, of course, she's probably better than anyone else for the job. I think that's, that's, that goes without saying, but to also make the, the, the process of her learning a part of your learning and vice versa, I think it just makes it that much more, you know, it's one person or two people in that process. But I feel that that growth, that that connection is so thing because I've had people who have done that for me in, in, in small ways, whether it's um, just asking the question, right? Not just automatically assuming that they know all the things that I need in form of assistance or what I can and can't. And those questions in some way, I'm, I, I can't speak for uh, the, the, the person you mentioned, but I think just the questions lead to this space of connection. And that I think that's what communication is, right? If we come at things with a curiosity mindset, we open ourselves to learning, we open ourselves to different experiences, we open ourselves to celebrating diversity of, you know, the different perspectives around the world. And it really does, it, it does start with, you know, being being open to asking questions and to literally listening and to getting into that space of really trying to understand somebody else's perspectives because her insights in so many different aspects of our business still have influence today, even though that she's moved on to a higher level position in a different company, you know, and, and being open to that and open to that learning, I think is a much better way of living life, at least in my opinion, um, because, you will, you will get to hear different stories. And, you know, it's not necessarily something that she never celebrated or, you know, talked about that. Oh, I'm overcoming these things. It was just like, no, this is my life. This is who I am. And this is how I show up. And it's just like, that's beautiful to me. So having that curiosity mindset really kind of set, um, set opportunities uh, to, to really connect with somebody and that's really try to, I honestly try to live my life in that way. And that's how I try to show up in every aspect, whether it's in business or in personal life and in leadership. Yeah, it's, it's, no, it's, it, you know, we sometimes just lose uh, a larger sense of what it means when we say communicate or language, but truly those words are, I think, necessary when you employ them in various aspects of business and life. But I think if you go beyond it, this idea of communication, language, connection, I think it's, it, it, they all go to represent one or a deeper human emotion and a human need, uh, which un is underlying to all these words and concepts. Yeah, absolutely. 
Now it's amazing what you're doing uh, and you know, with all the work you've uh, helped people with, with the team you've built for yourself and with the journey you've started on, the students you helped to where you are now, helping professionals and individuals. So I think it's amazing. Hats off to everything you've done and everything you continue to do, Jay. Thank you so much for joining me on today's episode. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure to have this conversation with you. Thank you. Hey, thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you like what you heard, please do check out the other episodes on YouTube or wherever you get your podcast. And I would much appreciate it if you could like the video, share it with people who you think might enjoy it. And of course, do subscribe to the channel because it will help me and the podcast grow and reach more people just like you. So thanks again. Appreciate it.